You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm the Rosenfeld, and uh, I'm very happy to be here today. This is Lou. I am meeting with Janae Cohn. Janae, how are you doing? I'm doing well and even better now that we're speaking. I'm so excited to be in conversation with you and with the listener community. Well, uh, it's great to talk with you. This is uh, um, uh, just after we got to meet for the first time in person in uh, Oakland uh, uh, just a couple weeks back. Uh, And we're recording right now at the very end of June, the last day of the second quarter. Uh, Don't let the door hit you on the way out, second quarter. Um, I'm not going to (laughs) miss you. But I am really happy to see you, Janae. Janae, if you're wondering, is like one of those people I get to work with, but like I got to meet her once finally after her book was written. She and Michael Greer have written a book that is just getting printed right now. It's due out on, I believe it's uh, July 27th, and it is called Design for Learning, User Experience in Online Teaching and Learning. And uh, a great person to be working on this book, Janae is Executive Director at the Center for Teaching and Learning at UC Berkeley. And just as good, she's got a couple of years of the University of Michigan on her pedigree, just like me. <laughs> Go blue and all that. But Janae, um, you and Michael, you wrote this book on design for learning. And uh, you're basically trying to help people create better uh, learning products, digital learning products. And yes. my first question, um, uh, like UX for these kinds of products, is it really that different than for any kind of product. Did we need a whole book on this? Mm. Well, I would argue it is absolutely different than UX for other products because when you are trying to design a training or a workshop or even just a one-off kind of how-to moment um, where you might want to immerse users in understanding a particular component of your product, you really need to understand how your users' motivations are going to differ um, from someone who's got just a specific aim to accomplish something. When someone's trying to learn, that requires a pretty complex set of ways of thinking about knowing and doing. Um, When you're trying to learn, it's a pretty vulnerable and scary thing to do. You have Mm. to understand both that you are trying to engage with the product and use it, but you're also trying to understand What are my options with this product? What are different ways that I can grow my skills or develop my understanding with this experience? And I'm speaking broadly here because I also think that when it comes to learning design in particular, we have to recognize that all different kinds of users are going to have different motivations to learn as well. Learning is really, really hard to do. And I think it's easy for us to take that for granted in a lot of like technical communication or user experience contexts. We might think of learning as being very transactional as well. I think in a lot of contexts, it's about, okay, you've watched the video or you've read the article. Congratulations, you've learned is a Mm -hmm. lot of the working assumption. But the reality is just like reading an article or watching a video, that's not really learning. That's just consuming information. So I think we needed to have a book like this to A, articulate what it means to help someone really be a learner. What's the science behind learning? And that's, of course, where me and my co-author Michael's expertise comes into play. We're both both educators by training. Um, 
And we found a lot of resonance in our own research of reading about UX theories and practices to help explain and help people who are designing learning products and experiences really better appreciate the complicated set of needs that learners really have. So this book is really intended, I think, to help people both design more purposeful learning experiences, as well as better understand and appreciate the complex array of needs that learners as a unique type of user really have. So, okay, it's interesting because uh, UX designers and, and, you know, the UX uh, crowd in general believes that it, it is pretty good at understanding the people it's serving and can take the methodology we have uh, and, and develop better products to help people do whatever, right? So, um, and yet there is a whole, uh, you know, there's uh, all, all, centuries of pedagogy out there, you know, the science that you describe. Um, are they really very different? I'm sure they are, but like if a mm. UX person who kind of thought they understood how to learn about people and what those people need, whatever their goal was, if they encountered the kind of science that you've, you and Michael have steeped yourselves in for your whole careers, would we be shocked by what we didn't know? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Uh, I'll start with what is surprising before maybe moving into what might be less surprising. I think what, what UX designers might find surprising about learning science is that learning is really motivated by social interactions, and it's really motivated by emotion above all else. I think that Unfortunately, both Michael and I have seen a lot of our own experiences of reading the literature and learning design, a lot of really bad myths about, you know, when you understand users trying to accommodate this myth of learning styles or thinking that, well, if I could just pigeonhole each learner as a visual learner or an auditory learner, and I design things based on those preferences, I've met those needs because learning is this individual enterprise with its own special preferences. And that none of that is true. Um, and while it may be the case that some people do learn better by, say, having the option of reading a transcript while watching a video and then taking a quiz, some people are going to need to have a lot more discussion with someone else. Some people will need to be taking their own notes. Um, you really want to give people choices. But at the heart of it, I want to return to this concept. I think what will be surprising is that learning is social. Most people are very motivated by knowing that they're not learning in isolation. Most people are very motivated by knowing that they're learning in community or for community. Most people's motivations to learn are really geared towards what they want to do with other people. So I think that's a really important pivot to make in some of these conversations. It's that it's not just about understanding um, an individual user's need is not even just about understanding needs in aggregate from something like a focus group or doing user research, but it really is about um, understanding what drives people to learn in the first place mm -hmm. and then really trying to capitalize upon those motivations. And that's where I think it's maybe less surprising to user researchers, especially is they do a lot of methods and approaches that are really about understanding and designing based on empathizing with users and iterating upon what they learn 
about them when they develop that, that empathy. That methodology is really similar, but I think it just, again, needs to be contextualized in a moment that recognizes that, again, learning can't happen in decontextualized or isolated ways. We always have to be aligning it with remembering that it really is, it, it's an iterative process learning too. And I recognize design is also an iterative process. So in that way it also dovetails, but I guess my point, I think the way we see a lot of learning design products made, it assumes these very discrete, isolated experiences that are based on kind of superficial measurements or understanding of what learning is. That doesn't account for like the very complex net of socio-cultural influences that really make learning possible. I don't know if that fully answers your question. Oh, does it, it absolutely <laughs> does. But I want to flip okay. it around now. And uh, yeah. if I was uh, an instructional designer, um, what might I learn from the UX designer that might be surprising to me? Yeah, so I think that a learning designer would be very surprised to learn about, I think, just the the rigorous ways of understanding how environments are built. Um, and I think that UX designers think a lot more critically than a lot of learning designers do about um, thinking through the online space as a full ecosystem of experiences. I think learning designers can kind of get hung up on individual artifacts, like making the perfect video or making the perfect quiz. And these are parts of that ecosystem. But I think a UX designer to me thinks more holistically about moving between these different artifacts and thinking about building a full immersive kind of experience on the web. And that was one reason that Michael and I really wanted to bridge these conversations is we really felt like learning and instructional designers could really benefit from thinking more holistically about, okay, how is someone gonna have a seamless experience moving from one learning artifact or one module to the other? And what are some approaches to designing those experiences that make a learner really feel like they're not struggling to find what they need? It's not that it isn't important to make a great video or to make a great quiz or to make great discussion prompts or design a really good webinar. And our book talks about what goes into designing all these components actually bit by bit. But we thought it really important to weave them all together and give you this foundational knowledge to kind of mimic what we felt very inspired by in our reading of UX design, which again is really thinking about not just how do you think about each one-off artifact, but how are you creating a really cohesive, full embodied experience that's on the web? Because I think what UX designers are also really good at doing is recognizing what the web is capable of and what it isn't. And I think sometimes people who find themselves in instructional design careers do so via education. Well, like me and Michael, right? right? And sometimes we take the, our environments for granted, right? There's sort of an assumption that everyone knows, you know, when you teach face-to-face in a classroom, Everyone knows what the door is. Everyone knows what you do when you sit in the chairs. Everyone knows what to do with the desk. When you're online, though, you don't have doors. You don't have desks. You don't have chairs. You have to or body language for that matter, right? Or gestures, right? Or, and, yeah, exactly. Or any of the signals that people are learning. A lot of teachers when they teach in person, or you know, trainers for that matter, too. Corporate trainers are looking for a lot of clues, like from body language, like you say, Lou, but also like is the room loud right now? Is the room quiet? Um, do people seem distracted? Like 
these are all things you can't do online, but UX designers are really good at thinking about ways to captivate that attention and, and help learner and designer alike know if it's working. Now, so we thought that was important. Now, what about mixed environments that are hybrids between digital and in-person? Do you feel, or, or, or hybrids between synchronous and asynchronous? Is that something that we're seeing more and more in learning products? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I would um, be really curious. I mean, my, my experience is I, I get small slivers, but I'm certainly seeing more. And I'd love to hear how people are innovating across modalities, because I think that there's a ton of potential to engaging with like the best of both worlds, so to speak. Um, right. I mean, I'm thinking especially even if you're limited to fully online environments for delivering your training or designing your learning experience, if you can blend some of the best of what happens in a webinar, with some of the best of an asynchronous experience from, again, engaging with content like text or uh, images or videos online and letting people access that at their own pace, you get to bridge some of that real-time social interaction that can feel very vibrant with some of the value letting people kind of take their time through content, giving your users space to orient to that content and engage with it however they need to do to be successful. I think that part of our job as learning designers who are bringing UX into that work is thinking about how to exploit the best of that optionality and really trust learners to have the agency they need to be successful at experience. So have you done the hybrid? I know oh, you do gosh. a bunch of trainings and conferences. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, so. <laughs> we, we spend a lot of time thinking about hybrid um, and uh, we're probably gonna do at least one conference next year that'll be hybrid in uh, 2024. The, the bigger issue is the economics and especially in an uncertain time. Uh, to, not that the, the design yeah. aspects are easy, they're not, but um, you know, the, the, the way uh, people with increasingly limited budget will approach how they want to spend on learning uh, and in what modalities is really a, a big question right now. In fact, yes. it's such a big question that it makes my head hurt and makes me want to take a quick break. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do. Oh, no. uh, but okay. but, <laughs> but uh, I, that's okay, because when we get back, uh, I really want to dive into a point you made. And I've heard it made before, and it always sits with me uh, in, a, in a really good way and kind of gets me uh, kind of jazzed up. And that point is that learning is social. So I'm looking forward to mm talking with you about that after the break everyone else thanks for being here we're going to take a break and you are listening to the rosenfeld review we'll be right back hey it's lou and i am here to tell you that we have another conference coming up and this one is the biggest one that we do all year it's the design ops summit it's taking place virtually october 2nd through 6 2023 you're gonna to wanna to be part of it. Even if you're not a design ops practitioner, you might be without realizing it. Certainly if you're a design manager, design program manager, design leader, or someone who works with things like research repositories, design systems, I think you probably are doing something related to design operations. And uh, we have just launched the program. You're gonna to wanna to check it out. It is and Fuego. Hope to see you October 2nd through 6th at the Design Ops Summit. 
Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. Lou Rosenfeld here with Janae Cohn. We are talking about the new book coming out in late July, Design for Learning. And uh, I had promised that uh, we were going to get into this issue of learning as something that is social. It kind of has to be. And Janae, I, I, you know, I mean, as we get into that, I, I also wonder if that addresses an issue with online learning, which is, it, as any, let's say, parent of the present era will tell you, it, it's really hard for uh, people to stay engaged when they're yes. learning online. It's often a solo activity. How do you counter that through the social aspects of, of online learning? Gosh, there is so much you can do to make learning more social online. And I will just to plug part of the book here, say that we have a whole chapter that have a bunch of different strategies. And I'll just give a preview of what some of those look like right now, but I do encourage you, it's chapter nine. Um, that's really our chapter where we do a deep dive into how you can build social experiences into your online training or course, regardless of whether you've got people there in real time or not. So I think one really great way you can make learning feel more social engaged is by actually asking learners to participate with kind of temperature checks throughout the course experience. And this could be a quick poll. And again, people could take this asynchronously or synchronously just to see the results of how other people are feeling about what's going on in the course. This could be, you know, you could ask questions as simple as like, how well do you feel like you're understanding the content so far? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it like so-so? Even that limited check-in where other people can see where they are can start to feel like, oh, there are other humans who are here trying to learn this along with me. I'm not doing this alone. Um, I really like activities too where people can comment on shared artifacts together. That's not too unwieldy for learning experience or designing, but if people can leave marginalia into text and do shared annotation, there's a lot of cool tools to do that with these days. And it's a low lift for you as a designer and has a really high impact um, for learners. Um, I even think that, you know, the discussion forum gets a bad rap and it does feel like a little bit of like an early 2000s, like fever dream of- But so does Reddit. <laughs> and it's doing right? And fine. it's still successful, right? Um, I think really, you know, discussions fail when you have bad prompts. So it becomes a matter of like, if you can create a prompt that really targets uh, a conversation and that might mean assigning people certain roles in the discussion, right? Saying, let's unpack our perspectives on a particular issue we're trying to unpack. Okay, everyone with last names A through G, try taking on this role. Everyone with last names H through M, try taking on a different role. Things like that, that kind of force people to play and talk to each other can be really powerful. And there's really great discussions of, or excuse me, really great examples, I would say, of like user-generated discussions in a lot of corporate settings, Salesforce, has um, some really great examples of this in their own sort of user communities of having really good asynchronous discussion to build community when people are learning how to use their products. Um, Meta has some really good examples in its own internal development learner communities. So never underestimate the power of a good prompt to get people talking. There's a whole other set of engagement strategies you can do in webinars, which we also talk about in the book and it's very on chapter. 
Oh no, I'm forgetting which chapter it is. Ah, <laughs> I think we do that in chapter six or seven. Um, I could look at, but you'll find it when you pick up the book. Um, I should know that off the top of my oh, head. Oh no, but I you don't. shouldn't. I'll look for it while you're. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> I got the table of contents handy. Woohoo! Um, right, because that's another way to build sociability. Some webinars feel extremely isolating. I just want to say that that a webinar will not necessarily make your learning experience feel social, even if you've got everyone on a call. How many webinars have you been in, Lou, where you are like not tuned in at all because someone's just droning on and on and like you feel like you might as well just be like on your own listening? Oh, pretty to much all of them. <laughs> <laughs> right? They're terrible. I feel like I've been just so, I'm just so done with webinars where I feel like I'm not actually interacting with people. So we really thought it was important to have a whole chapter on like, yeah, even if your course is in real time, just because you're there together doesn't mean it's actually social. So make your webinar social. Well, you know, also it's like how you define social. Oh, by the way, webinars, uh, chapter eight. <laughs> Thank but you. <laughs> the social aspects, it's not just groups, but I think it's the the nature of how someone teaching is is like it's how they develop the the voice and tone of their interaction. So let me give you an example. Yeah. So, you know, we do all these conferences and for the last three years, they've been all virtual. And one of the things that I think has been really difficult for speakers is to take the mode and they're teaching, right? So that, but they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, you, they were used to the mode of standing in front of an audience and seeing a lot of faces and getting energy back from them. And, but, but taking that sort of industrial era approach to one to many instruction, mm -hmm. uh, one to many mm -hmm. teaching. And then they're suddenly facing uh, a picture of themselves in Zoom in the virtualization yeah. era, and it's it's like a it's a, a a a splash of cold water. There was for many people. And one way we got them yeah. over that is we used to say, "You're not don't think about communicating to a group of people, especially because you can't see them typically. Think about communicating to one person." Mm -hmm. and make it more of a one-to-one -one style of of engagement. Uh, it, it's still social, but it, it's like peer-to-peer -peer rather than teacher-to-underlings. Uh, and we, we even went as far as to say, you know, hey, when you're giving your talk, take a photo of someone you care about, someone who makes you feel good or, or you know, a partner or friend and put it next to your monitor and pretend you're speaking to them. And, and, and get this, Janae, I had people, I still do, who speak at our conferences who say, I have a better approach that I use. I actually get my favorite person, the person who makes me feel comfortable, and I put them on FaceTime and I mute them and I put the phone right by the monitor and I see them as I'm speaking and they're giving me, you know, thumbs up or <laughs> telling me to hurry up or whatever it is, uh, you know, without the sound on, That's of so course. Nice. And and so there's like a, a certain, I think it's important to, to, to delve into the definition of social when it comes mm. to online learning. It's not just big groups, right? It's it's not, it's not quantity, it's quality. I, I absolutely agree. I think, I, I love those ideas. They're so creative and, and thoughtful and they activate that um, attentiveness to being human in real time. So I just, there, I have no bigger pet peeve in a training than when someone takes up a bunch of airspace doing something that I could have watched on my own time. 
where I didn't really need to be in real time with them in a room. And that's like always the advice I give is like, what can you uniquely do with people in real time? Because you are, you are demanding their respect in that moment. You are demanding, you are taking up a lot of resources <laughs> by asking them to be in that space with you. Time is precious. So how are you going to make it the best possible time for them? So when people leave, they go, wow, I'm really glad I was there in real time to experience that moment instead of saying, oh, I could just watch that as a recording later. Well, and our chapter has a lot of tips on that. <laughs> well, I mean, this starts making me think of something I think you touched on in the very beginning of the podcast, which is um, how this is a different kind of product than most UX people yeah. are used to. And and it may have different metrics or other ways of of establishing whether or not we're being successful as teachers. Yes. So, yes. How, I mean, how is it different? How do you know that the outcome has been a good one? Right. So... I think to answer that question, I'm going to take one step back and kind of quickly describe our learning design framework. Mm -hmm. So I want to start there because you would, I recommend that anyone trying to know if their experience is working to do that based on some of the goals that they're identifying at the beginning of their design process, right? That I mentioned this process is iterative. And by, I mean, when you want to know that your experience is successful, you have to go all the way back to why you decided mm -hmm. to create this learning experience in the first place, right? So when you are just starting to create a learning experience, whether you're planning a webinar or a full course or just a kind of one-off training, right? You want to think, of course, first about who are your learners. You have to learn about who your audience is, who your primary audience is. And then you really want to identify the problem that your course is going to solve for them right? What, why are they coming into your course in the first place? Or why are they taking a training? Or why are they coming to your webinar? Like everyone who's going there has a problem they want to solve. It's not just that they want to learn piece of content X, right? That's the mistake a lot of people make is they think, well, they want to learn about blockchain or whatever. Well, no, I don't know that anyone actually cares about justifying. Well, I shouldn't say that. Someone out there cares about just defining blockchain, but someone wants to solve a problem with blockchain, they have an issue. They think blockchain will solve for them, let's just say, mm -hmm. right? So think through all the problems that someone might be trying to solve by trying to understand how blockchain works, just as an example. I love that I'm using an example, by the way, that I know like almost nothing about. So anyone listening to who actually knows things about blockchain can probably come up with great examples of problems. Um, and then from there, right, you want to think about, okay, once, you, once you've named the problems you need learners to solve, what's the outcome for them? When they have the answer to that problem, what should they be able to do with that information to solve their problem? And then what are their goals, right? Once they achieve that outcome, what are they, what, how is that going to inform the work that they do as learners, right? Whether they're employees at a company or whether they're students, they're going to take this information back with them to their context and do something with it. So being really, really specific about um, what their problems are what the end point of the learning experience is and what the goals are can then help you build that map. And then when it comes down to then saying, okay, did this work or did it not work? You can return to those goals and say, okay, how did I see through the engagement in the webinars? How did I see through the completion of activities on the course I designed or the training I completed? What kinds of completion metrics might tell me whether people achieve these goals? Um, 
you could get even more creative than just completion metrics, however. You could, you know, of course, design survey questions that pointedly ask people how well they achieved the goals that you identified right up front. Surveys, of course, are subjective and mm -hmm. not everyone takes them. Response rates are kind of low often enough. So I wouldn't lean on that as your sole assessment instrument, but it is important to think about in your portfolio of assessment options. You might even have an assignment at the very end where in order to complete the training or the course experience, someone has to share top three takeaways from the course. What are three things you're going to do? That can be really good information for you, a designer, where someone can tell you, ah, you know, the three, three, thing, the three things they want to do after the course is over may or may not align with the three things you thought they would do. Is there alignment or is there disconnect? Right. So I think there's a variety of both like passive and active instruments that you could engage with for assessment. And we do actually have a whole chapter <laughs> on assessing your course here as well. We actually have it from two perspectives. One of the chapters is about how do you know uh, if your learners are actually learning the material? And then how do you know if your course worked? Right. These are two different things that are part of the assessment framework. You need to know along the way. Are your learners getting the feedback they need to be successful? Or are they running amok or feeling adrift? That's one piece. Um, that's chapter 10. And in chapter 11, the second piece is for you as a designer to kind of look at everything holistically, think about your design framework, do that fine alignment and say, yeah, did this course work at all? Or do I need to revise this really substantially the next time I offer it or someone else offers it? Well, I, I you know, of course, Maybe another part of what uh, someone who is a, a designer who's moving into the space needs to learn and understand is maybe to be a bit kind to themselves and a, and a bit patient with themselves because, you know, there are certainly these types of outcomes that can be measured, uh, certainly established up front, but ultimately a, a lot of learning is about changing the, the learner as a person. So mm -hmm. even if you're learning blockchain, you're changing and it, it may not yes. be apparent for some time. It could be years or let's say mm -hmm. forget blockchain. It's like you're learning to be a better leader. It's not, you it's, it's long after someone has interacted with the product that that's necessarily going to be discernible. And that's, that seems like that would be a very daunting uh, challenge to someone who is moving into uh, from, from maybe more, conventional types of products and services that UX people might normally work with to uh, designing for learning. So do you have advice mm -hmm. for uh, the designer who's moving into this space to help help them uh, cope with that type of challenge and maybe, uh, and then some? Yeah, well, I think your first piece of advice to be kind <laughs> is always a good starting place that when you're transitioning to a job, you're a learner too. You're going to have a really acute sense of what it's like to learn because you're transitioning. You're learning all along the way about how to be a learner. So I actually think that folks who are transitioning into this space um, are some of the best people to design learning experiences because they will be embodying the practice mm -hmm. as they go. Um, so that's one, that's kind of my, my fluffy advice, I guess, to start. Um, that was a fluffy question. So you're doing great. <laughs> well, it's, it's but it's a powerful question because I do think it is really challenging to move from helping people with really discrete and measurable activities to something like learning that is really tough to measure. So I guess the other thing I would encourage learning designers to think about is to 
create lots of checkpoints and opportunities throughout the experience to change course. Now you have to have the privilege to either be designing an experience where you are working with people in real time and can take their feedback along the way to iterate. But like, if you do have that privilege and you can, you know, create lots of checkpoints to get feedbacks so that you can change. Know that nothing is really set in stone. I think that's reassuring that there's really, there's a lot of room to make mistakes mm-hmm. and to hear from your users if something isn't working. And I will say too, if you are designing the kind of experience that, that is sort of static, where you're going to build, you know, a training module and it's going to get sold to a customer or a client and that's that, um, you might just think about getting feedback along the way from your colleagues before your due date, right? So even if the course itself doesn't naturally lend itself to getting feedback from the users, mm-hmm. create little checkpoints in your own planning process where you show it to um, your partner, you show it to a friend, you show it to a loved one, a trusted colleague. And really just, again, the more feedback you get along the way, humanity needs to be infused into learning experiences. I really think that a lot of our learning has lost its humanity because we're so focused on just getting the boxes checked and getting dragging people through these boring experiences. I, so I love that. Oh, let's, oh, that's, that's fantastic. And, and that's actually, oh, we could go a lot further with that, but we, we are at a point where um, we do need to wrap up and we still need to, get the gift you brought to our listeners before we do right. so. What, what did you bring us? Well, I think a community that this audience might really like um, is a great online community called the UX of Educational Technology Community. Um, Alicia Kwan is the founder of that community. Um, and she's done a really great job of bridging all these conversations and thinking about how educational technology products and their design can really benefit from the experiences and insights of people in the UX field. So I just think if people are drawn to this particular set of conversations, they will probably be drawn to the conversations happening in that community too. So that's a space I would encourage anyone who likes this book or this work to check out. Um, yeah, that's, I, I mean, I wanted to like mention something else, but I, I'm going to catch myself and say, let's start with one. Is <laughs> the whole ecosystem of, communities that are eager to engage but i think that's a good starting that sounds like a great one and we'll make sure we have the link in the show notes and janae just fantastic thank you thank you and thanks to michael greer for doing this fantastic contribution to the literature design for learning user experience and online teaching and learning coming out late July by uh, Rosenfeld Media. We are so happy to be associated with this book and, and uh, being, helping you all get the message out there. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me and thanks for supporting Michael and our, our work. We're just so thrilled to have it in the world and we hope people really benefit from it. Awesome. Hey, it's Lou. Thank you for listening to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. I really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you. And if you want to pop me an email, lou at rosenfeldmedia.com. Tell me what you thought. Better yet, leave me the hell alone and post a review on your favorite podcast platform. Please feed the algorithm. It really does make a difference. We want to get the word out. If you like the word, give us a hand. And uh, while I'm asking you for favors, don't forget, buy books. Support your favorite local independent publisher. We happen to be one rosenfeldmedia.com all those great ux books are there 
So thanks again.